WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Two weeks before he booked his first job on a film set, Bobby Huber ran away from the circus. Running away might sound a little dramatic, but then Bobby Huber's whole life has been dramatic. Every time his phone rings, he says... He knows his life is about to change. Growing up with circus performers as parents, Bobby and his sister, artist Fritzi Huber, spent most of the year on the road. As a young adult, Bobby went to work in the circus, sweeping up sawdust, graduating to elephant crap, and then becoming a prop boss, which parallels key grip on a film set. After working on Firestarter in Wilmington in the early 1980s, Bobby Huber rose through the ranks his circus rigging experience preparing him well for the job of key grip. And his work has helped earn Oscars in cinematography for two films, Braveheart and Legends of the Fall. Other standout credits include Snow Falling on Cedars, The Abyss, Always, Far and Away, and Back to the Future. His key grip resume includes more than 30 films, including Shag, shot in the late 1980s in the Carolinas, as well as multiple TV credits, including 90210. Bobby Huber, what a pleasure it is to welcome you to Coastline. It's my pleasure to be here. There is a free screening of the film Shag this Sunday, May 15th, at 4 p.m. at The Point 14 in Wilmington. Bobby Huber will answer questions from the audience after the film. This event is courtesy of the North Carolina Filmmakers Series. Bobby Huber, tell us about being the child of circus-performing parents. What did they do? My parents did a high wire. Uh, My sister and I are actually third generation, but... uh, we learned a whole different growing up uh, until my father passed away in 1962. So uh, after that, we had to, you know, move on to uh, regular life, and which was a big change. And I learned a lot from my father because of putting. I helped him put up the high wire rigging. So did he actually perform and put up the rigging, or yes, he did. He yes. did both. He okay. he. Yes, because it was just my mom and dad doing the act. So I would help him. I was driving a sledgehammer at nine, uh, and it was great. Uh, I remember lighting his Lucky Strike cigarettes uh, when he. (laughs) It's just so funny because I don't even think about the smoking factor. It was just a real treat for him to let me do that. But I did help put up the rigging. I learned a lot about laying out all the cables and the stakes and how everything worked. So by the time I was 10, when he passed away, I had already learned quite a bit about rigging. Which is incredible. A 10-year-old, that's a little boy. It drew me into wanting to learn more. And that's when I eventually started learning more about rigging as I got older. Now, what's obvious about circus rigging is that it's really critical that it's right. Mm, Oh, yeah. Like you check and double check and triple check. What did your dad teach you about not only doing it well, but your protocols for that? It was was a big safety deal. Everything had to be – you have to keep an eye on everything. There's one wrong thing can cause catastrophe. 
And really, he always taught me that there really is no such thing as a mistake. It like it does not happen. It doesn't. It will not exist in your life. You just don't have a mistake. If you're not sure about something, you don't do it. Wow. So you just really pull the plug unless you're a hundred percent comfortable with how That's you've right. set it up. Yeah. And you said your your parents were second generation circus performers. Tell yes. us about your grandparents. Well, my grandmother was a strong lady. Uh, now, my mom, she did vaudeville and a lot of things before she got met my dad and they got into it. But it was so interesting, the fact that my great-grandmother came across the Iron Curtain with a circus. And I never got to meet my grandmother or my great-grandmother, obviously. But uh, it, they were – their history – you know, it goes way back, uh, Germany and all of that. So my sister and I were born in Houston. We're the first generation in the U.S. So First generation American. Yeah. And so do you ever remember a time watching your parents perform and feeling frightened, <laughs> or, or did you always have complete faith in no, their skill? No, never felt frightened, ever. Really? In fact, my sister and I used to tear up the trailer what we could tell by what music was playing how far along the act was and we could open the vent in the trailer and see them uh, most of the time but we always knew what music when that last bit came when they did a really serious routine <laughs> is when we started cleaning up the trailer and putting everything back that we had torn up so well, what were you doing that we you were needed to clean up kind of fighting in a fun way we played a lot, and it was our chance to just be crazy. How do kids on the road with parents as circus performers get an education? Calvert's correspondence we got through the mail, and they would send us books and test papers, and my mother would teach us. Uh, and then she would send everything back. They would grade us, and then we would move on to the next. But that's what we did. All the way until uh, we got, you know, my father passed away. After that, we had to go to public school. And you, you've you said that you always thought you were wealthy growing up. You weren't. Well, we never knew that we didn't have a lot of money. We did feel wealthy. Um, we never starved for anything, you know. But you have to remember, when you live in a trailer on the road back then— uh, if you, there was no walk over and turn the light switch on or just turn the water on, you had running water. No, we had big five-gallon things of water that were just in middle things that you would just tip. We had powdered milk. Uh, we had electricity when we were – we had candles at night and electricity when we got to the location where we were going to work. So you felt like all your material needs were met and that yeah. was wealth to a child. That's right. You had a lot of fun. We did have a lot of fun. Now, when your dad passed away, you said your mom never remarried, but she continued to work a little bit in the circus. Yes. She uh, worked her way to the, being a wardrobe mistress. She loved that. And one of the producers, uh, Bob Atterbury, that we worked for, his wife ran the wardrobe department, and they were good friends. So she ended up doing that, which she really loved it. And uh, it, it brought her, you know, kind of back to home, being back in the circus. 
it was 1970 that you joined the circus yeah. as an employee for the first time. Yes. How old were you at that point? And 70, well, I was, you know, 20, you know, 19. So, re- so really young adult, yeah. barely full-blown adult, not yeah. really. We know now brains don't finish growing until your no. late 20s. So, um, so how did you start? What was your first job in the circus? I got a call from uh, the boss that I first started working with, Bob Atterbury, his assistant that ran. Bob's the uh, producer, and then his assistant ran everything else. Freddie Connolly, and he had an uncle that had a tent show that worked in Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio in the summer, and he asked me to work on that. Well, it was my first and last time to ever work on a tent show. Why is that? (laughs) Well, it's not only is it difficult, it's difficult to keep a crew at the money it pays. So it's is it sort of the bottom of the barrel? Is that well, what you're saying? Well, if I didn't have enough people to help, I had to call the city, and I would have to bail people out of jail to help <laughs> and pay them ten or fifteen dollars a day. Wow. And you can't pay them before they work because they just will leave. So this is when you're prop boss. This is when you're running. Yes, when right? I was running, that was my first. Yeah, and it was. Uh, First and last, we lost three tents for tornadoes in that neck of the wood. Uh, but we we got together and we sewed all the tents back together and, you know, reused the tent all season. But after that one, I said, uh, that's enough. That was just part of it. But you started sweeping sawdust mm-hmm. and you graduated to elephant poop. Why is that a graduation? Well, it's... <laughs> Well, spreading the sawdust is pre-production kind of if you before the show starts. Yeah, that's right. So you lay out the rings and give it the sawdust and you set everything up. And uh, then if you're promoted, you actually get to work during the show. And well, you start at the bottom, so you have to when the elephant poops in the ring, you have to get it out before the elephant gets back around again. So you really have to, it's talent to actually pick that up and keep going and get out of the ring. So in a way, you're like a stunt performer. The <laughs> elephant poops, you run into the ring. Exactly. It's, it's choreography. That's right. <laughs> it's all timing. <laughs> and what would happen if you didn't get out in time? Well, it depends. The elephants are very friendly animals. They're one of the animals that you do want to look them in the eye, and they're very, but they're not all friendly. You have Every one of them has a different name, and every one of them has a different personality. It's It sounds strange, but they do. Like people. Yes. Yeah. And they exactly that. And they know you, and you know them. And when you're around them long enough, you know, you're, you know which ones to get close to and which ones not to. So you avoid the ones you know to avoid. And you actually are kind of glad now that the circus has changed and uses animals. I am glad that animals, I'm sorry for a lot of my friends that had animals, but Circus Soleil and Circus O and all that, it's much better, I think. You're listening to Coastline. Bobby Huber, professional key grip, is my guest today. When we return from this short break, why the words in a script, it was a cold, dark, rainy night, are some of the worst words a key grip can read. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. 
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Bobby Huber has served as key grip on many films, including two Oscar winners, Braveheart and Legends of the Fall, which both won for cinematography. He was also key grip for the 1989 movie Shag. There's a free screening of Shag this Sunday, May 15th at 4 p.m. at the Point 14 in Wilmington. Bobby Huber will be there to answer questions from the audience following the screening courtesy of the North Carolina Filmmakers Series. So, Bobby Huber, it was a cold, rainy, cold, dark, rainy night. One of the worst first lines you can read in a script. Why? That sounds so exciting. Well, you know, it's two things. It's exciting uh, to the audience. Uh, I know that I'm going to be doing a lot of work in the night, in the rain, in the mud. And uh, so, you know, it's it's all the, the grounds that covers just the first two pages of a script sometimes can make you, you know, it, it gets better as it goes. But starting <laughs> out like that, you just kind of think, okay, what am I about to get into here? Not only do you have to help create that, but you have to be in it. And protect people from your weather, which is one of my jobs. You know, a lot of rain protection, a lot of wind, mud, all that kind of thing. So it, it makes the job much more difficult. It's kind of like uh, in comparison to when you do a film in a location, the most beautiful locations you can go to are the most difficult for the grip and lighting, electricians, all that. It's You think it's so beautiful, but you got to get there without destroying anything. And a lot of times it's a lot of hand carry equipment instead of being able to just drive a truck there and unload it and roll your carts to the set. It's not like that. You wouldn't be able to drive these big no. gear trucks right into That's right. these buttes. You these work in the jungles like in Costa Rica or Hawaii or anywhere like that. It's it's much more work. So okay, we're gonna we're gonna hear a clip in a second from <laughs> Shark Night. But before we get to that, just tell us exactly what a key grip does. What is this? So we know in the circus you learned rigging and you learned how to set up the high wire so that nobody, nothing was gonna come down. It was a safe high wire. What is that? What do you do on a film set to rig? The most simple way I can put it. It's lighting and camera support and safety on the set as far as platforms, handrails, overhead rigging, and that sort of thing. Now, every department has their own safety lines. Mine happens to be just, you know, i got to protect the camera, make it safe, uh, and the people that are operating the camera, and that sort of thing. So that's... It's, small and short as I can put the description. And you also said lighting. So if big lights have to be set up. That's uh, right. Yeah. You also are responsible for making sure those are secure. That's right. We, they, the electricians put their light up and then I go to work. I bring them ladders and sandbags and I bring diffusions and colors for the light and then we shape the light. Because once that light's up and on, it's my baby to deal with. 
Now, you got a call to go to work on a film <laughs> called, I don't mean to chuckle, but you are, so it's fair, <laughs> Shark Night, a low-budget film from 2011 about uh, sharks attacking people in a lake. How did these sharks who are attacking people who are trying to have a nice summer vacation at a lake? So so the sharks are in the saltwater lake. Uh, this is the first time I've heard of this film, but, you know, that doesn't mean anything. What, what did this film mean to you? And when you saw the title Shark Night, what did you think? Um, I thought my friend called me to work on it. And he said, look, I'm going to be doing this thing Uh with Mark Davis, who was the key grip at the time, uh, and then Scott Davis, uh, Scott Hillman, sorry, Scott Davis, my other friend, uh, Scott Hillman, who we called Scooter, he was working on the show with Mark Davis, and he called me and said, look, it's a low budget, it's five weeks, you know, and I said, well, what is it? He said, well, it's called Shark Night. And I just started laughing. I went, you are kidding, right? And he goes, no, it's all nights, five weeks of nights in Louisiana, Baton Rouge. Uh, but nobody wants to, you know, I said, you know what? It's, I'm not doing anything right now. Uh, yeah, let's just do it. And we got there and started, you know, getting, prepping everything. We scouted the lakes. We scouted everything. And then we started shooting the first night on the lake, and at midnight we broke for lunch, and the Oof. director, David Ellis, who's recently, sorry, passed away, uh, he was a great man, very young, in fact, uh, he decided to call the crew to a meeting before lunch and tell the director and the director, well, the director of photography and the crew that we are not gonna shoot this movie at night. And so everybody said, what? How, well, how's that going to work? And he said, Gary, you're going to have to figure out. He was the director of photography and said, you're going to have to figure out what, how we're going to do this. And I don't want to do nights. I'm never, I, I hate filming at night, and I'm not going to do it. So you got to figure it out. Wow, so, <laughs> shark night. We're not shooting at night. Yeah. Okay. Right. So are you shooting outside then on the real lake with well, real sunshine had, during the day? We had a big uh, tank, which was like, uh, I think it was about 300 by 150 or something. It was a large tank that we were going to film in anyway. And so Gary just turned to Scooter and Mark and me and said, uh, okay. We're going to have to tent in this tank. And so we did. We rigged it that we could take the tent off and on, put a silk or put a solid to make it dark, light. And so we shot most of the film in that tank during the day. Amazingly, which made everybody happy. So you wound <laughs> up actually, you thought this was going to be a bear, this yeah. job. And yeah. it actually turned into something you enjoyed. Yeah, it, it did. It turned into more fun than I thought it was going to be. Which is, take note, part of the story of Bobby Huber's life. <laughs> I mean, you really do 
we're, we're going to get to how you follow your gut instincts, because it's one of the things that I think is so extraordinary about you. Just your life goes from one adventure to the next, and you seem largely to really enjoy it and make the most of it. Yeah, I, I do. I kind of like, you know, some people like surprises on their birthday and Christmas, and I kind of like surprises all the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay with me, you know. And nothing, I you know, I try not to let anything affect the direction I'm going in anyway. And if it looks like a better direction to go, I'll, I'll, I'll take that road, you know. You worked on Braveheart, which is one of the two Oscar-winning films. It won for cinematography. Yes. And there's a, a scene in which Mel Gibson, who's playing William Wallace, he's, he's delivering this great speech on the battlefield to inspire the men before the battle, and the camera is is following him as he gallops around delivering the speech. Let's. I am William Wallace. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. <laughs> and that looks like a complicated shot because, I mean, of course, as the viewer, you're just watching him give this speech on his horse, but the camera is following him. What? How did, how did that happen? Uh, we had a piece of equipment that is quite famous and used now. It's, most, it's a vibration isolating head. It's called the Lieber head. Now, a man named Nick Phillips brought that I designed it, and that was the first time it's ever been used. And so it was an experiment, which we did work out bugs that it had after, during. And uh, anyway, it, it's a, 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 a vibration-isolating head, and we had it on a track that vertically went up and down. You could adjust that from the people in the vehicle. There was three people, the driver, the operator of the camera, who pointed it, uh, actually it was four people, there was a focus puller, and then there was another person who ran the motor that took the camera up and down on a track. And so we could drive alongside that horse and put the camera at any height we wanted with the vibration isolator motion, and that lever head has now become the most famous uh, remote head that is incredible because yeah. you're you're watching Mel Gibson bob up and down That's on right. this horse and yeah. the camera is staying right there with him. Yes. So also in this in the battle of Falkirk the camera has to kind of fly over the heads of the men heading into battle. Let's listen to this. Cavalry! And I don't know, just hearing the the music and the horses and uh, the the gear that the men are wearing, I guess, armor as well, mm -hmm. how much you can remember about exactly where we are in the scene. But how did, what was the rigging then for that camera that had to sort of do the eagle's eye view over the men as they're riding in? We did have a helicopter. Uh, this is before the drone world came around. 
but we did have helicopters, and uh, we had uh, three cranes that we used, the uh, camera cranes. Uh, you know, we just, it depended whatever the shot was, we figured out what piece of equipment to, and that's really comes to me a lot of it. Uh, when they just tell me, here's their shot, you know, what do we want to use? And then I kind of work with the director of photography, which was John Toll, uh, on both that and Legends of the Fall. And he, you know, we would get together, put our heads together, and figure out what to do. I mean, there was a certain point where we couldn't actually use the lever head for a couple of shots, so we built an airbag seat in the back of a small pickup truck and let the air out of the tires and put a steady cam on that seat. So you had three suspensions. You had the vehicle suspension, you had the seat on airbags, and then you had the steady cam mount on a Garfield pin with the operator on the back of the pickup truck. So that worked out for a lot of shots that we were doing the horse's hoofs. Yeah. And then you tilt up to the, you know, ride the rider. Um that worked out to be a very handy. We could send that off to another group and do a little second unit stuff on the side, get steel shots, you know, and then it saved time. And there's also this scene when flaming arrows are shot at the fighters on the horses on the battlefield. Those are the arrows. And then we start to see them landing. And these horses, oh, this is hard to watch. They're going down in flames. How did that work? Well, one of the things, wherever we put the camera, I always put a piece of Lexan. It's a plastic that's bulletproof. Uh, I would cut Lexan to whatever size I need and put it over the camera with the operator and the focus puller under that so anything that hit that it wouldn't go hit them uh some of the horses we actually had they uh special effects had made horses on track so they looked real and when they came in and got speared or shot they weren't real horses so we didn't have that we luckily we had 1500 military irish that we didn't even have to pay. They even brought their own lunches. They were volunteers that Ireland gave us to have. So we had them for like, I think, six weeks and did not have to pay them, which was a great thing. for. And that was part of the, you know, the, the little bait to get us to film there. And so it That really, was one of the incentives for yes, you to shoot Yes, it was one of the incentives. So... Yeah, we did a lot in Scotland, but then 12 weeks in Ireland. Going back to your safety issue, which is kind of what you always lead with, you there's a story that you tell about your key grip. You told these guys, it wasn't on Braveheart, I don't think. It was a different set. But you said to these guys, the crane needs to move. And this is a crane that's held some heavy gear camera, Mm -hmm. very much like in Braveheart. And you have to be so careful with those things because if they crash, if they fall down or get tipped over, what does that mean for you? Uh, It could mean uh, death to a a grip. It could mean 
serious injuries, which has happened. Uh, and this is one of the things that I happened to be, we were loading out at night and we were happening to move this camera crane. It's 32 feet long and it has about 2,000 pounds of lead weights in the back end of it to counterbalance the camera and the things. There was no camera on it, but we were wrapping. It was night. And I told the guys to take the, around the flat road. Don't try to cross the soft ground. And then I got pulled away to work uh, loading the trailer and helping with that. And then all of a sudden on the radio, the guys decided to take the shortcut and went through the... Well, the base kicked out from under it, and it completely damaged the crane in, in a bad way. Only one grip got his finger pinched, but it wasn't horrible. Uh, luckily, nobody got killed. But it was about an $80,000 piece of equipment that had to be, you know, replaced. You had to replace it because you can't trust it once it's... Well, obviously, I didn't. It wasn't mine, and production has the insurance. They had to replace it. So, But it was just one of those things where before it happened, I said, don't do that. They thought they knew better. I walked away, and there was my bad because I should not have walked away except I got called off to help with something else. You know, the interesting part of this story to me is that you said to these guys, don't do it. Take the long way. Go around where the where the ground is hard. And they said, well, we can just lay down something hard and roll it over yes. that. So it was sort of a compromise shortcut. Yes. Well, and there was even a, that was a bad idea. Yes. And they said because it was a stone pathway about four inches taller than the soft ground. And they put some little pieces of wood and thought they would just go over this. It was made a little ramp thing, and it, it was. And I told them not to do that. I I didn't tell them. I asked them not to do it, and uh, they did it. And that's what happened. And yet, one of the interesting, um, I guess, jewels in the crown of your career is the fact that you don't have any serious accidents on your resume. Nothing's happened as we look for wood to I'm knock. I'm looking for wood. Here's a piece of paper that used to be wood. Yeah. But what do you chalk that up to after all these decades of working in film, um, no accidents? It's, you know, look, there's some rigging, and I, I will not deny it, and every stunt coordinator or safety person in, in anything, there's always certain things that you're, what I call sphincter lock. You kind of <laughs> just hold your breath through the whole thing and just hope you know it's safe, but things could go wrong. And you just keep your fingers crossed and, you know, just hope that everything you did was right. And uh, it's sometimes it's out of your hands. It, it has, it, we get it done. But there's times when it's, you know, you're on a thread and you just hope that thread doesn't break. But... You're listening to Coastline. More with Bobby Huber, professional key grip, in just a moment. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Growing up in the circus, his parents' performers, Bobby Huber, learned the importance of dotting I's and crossing T's. Because one unchecked piece of rigging could mean a performer plunging to the end of a career, or even their death. Bobby Huber joined the world of professional filmmakers when a friend invited him to help with rigging on the 1980s film Firestarter, one of the first feature films to shoot in Wilmington, North Carolina. He went on to key grip for Braveheart, Legends of the Fall, Snow Falling on Cedars, The Jungle Book, and Shag, among many others. There's a free screening of Shag this Sunday, May 15th, at the Point 14 in Wilmington, courtesy of the North Carolina Filmmakers Series. Bobby Huber will answer questions from the audience after the film. Bobby Huber, one of the other Oscar-winning films that you worked on was Legends of the Fall with Anthony Hopkins, Brad Pitt, Julia Ormond. And there is a scene in Legends of the Fall when Julia Orman is riding in a car with these horseback escorts and having a conversation. (laughs) So let's just listen to what this... Well, your mother has told me all about one step. She says that he was a great warrior. Oh, yes. He has a bag of scalps hidden away somewhere to prove it, too. (laughs) So she's talking with a guy on a horse, I think. How do you shoot the close-ups of her with her kind of bouncing around in this very old vintage vehicle? Well, we had a uh, what they call an insert car. It's a camera car where you put cameras on, and it's got air suspension. Uh, we did a lot with that. We also had an ATV, which I owned, that had mounts for cameras on that. So when you got into places where you didn't have a lot of room, you could do that sort of thing. Uh, now, that is a difficult vehicle to do long-lens close-ups, so that's where the insert car comes into play. And that is, uh, and plus we also had a mount on the insert car that you could put a steady cam on. So you again had another suspension, and it, it really worked out well for what we did for that. It, it did work out well, the film won yeah. <laughs> Oscar for cinematography, yeah. yeah. So... What do you say every time your phone rings? What do I do what? What do you say every time your phone rings? Oh, <laughs> well, I, obviously I say hello, but then I never know who's at the other end because now you can get the numbers and everything. Back in the day, you know, I remember the, when I first got a my first pager, you know, and that <laughs> went off. And I had quarters in my truck, and I would pull over and find a phone booth, which are hard to find now. <laughs> and you would pull over, find this phone booth, and... And call and find out. And it, most likely it would be a job. And your life would change. Yeah. Time to go to Africa. Yeah. Time to... Exactly. So I want to go back to your decision to leave the circus. We talked earlier mm-hmm. in this conversation about you kind of moving through the ranks of the circus. And there came a day when you were just done. You were leaving, but you didn't know what was next. Tell us about that. Well, um, we got to the end of the season. The second season I did on that show, it was uh, Tarzan Zerbini Shrine Circus. Most of everything I did was uh, Shrine Circus. it was 50 weeks and 40,000 miles uh, for two seasons. 
And at the end of the second season, because I did all the rigging, and I did ran the show, won it as a two-and-a-half-hour show, you know, uh, and it was a lot. Yeah. Plus, we had four 40-foot semis with animals and equipment that I had to get the permits, get those over the road, and it was just an ongoing. I mean, there were some days I just got in my bus in my tuxedo after coming down from dropping the show and drive to the next location and just sleep for a couple of hours and clean up and go back up and, you know, and, and that's what made me say, you know what, I've, I'm, I'm done with this. I've got to change, you know, I'm, I'm working myself to death, basically. And that's when I made the decision to just whatever happens is going to happen and I'm done. We went back to Houston, which was your what you considered your hometown right. at that point. And right. a series of, of things happened that just sort of led to this next this career in filmmaking. Yeah, I did get a couple of job offers in the two weeks I took to go back to Houston. Uh, but I, I didn't take them because it didn't feel right. It wasn't what I wanted to do. Uh, I just wanted to get back to Houston, take a deep breath, and then figure things out. And I was there about three days when I decided to go and pop in and see a friend of mine. He lived about six blocks away, old surfing buddy, long, long-time friend, John Hernandez. And when I went there, he wasn't there. He was here in Wilmington, and his wife, Margie, told me that, you know, he was working on a, a feature film. He had a commercial business, and he now went into a feature. He did one feature film, and this was now his second one. And she said, well, you know, he usually calls me about now. So if you want to wait around, you know. So we had a beer and talked, you know. And finally, she said, well, he may not call me. It's getting late. And I said, you know what? Just tell him I said, hey, I just haven't seen him in a couple of years. And uh, I'm, I'm happy for him. As I got outside... Uh, last step uh, off the porch, she came, the phone rang, it was him. He was calling her to find my mother's phone number to find out where I was. He was looking for you. He was looking you for me. You went to his house And I was looking actually for him. at his house, yes. So you, you were looking for each other, and why, <laughs> why was he trying to find you? He needed a rigger to come to Wilmington to do the rigging for Firestarter. Boom, he and was that's yes. the next phase. And that was it. And I left uh, three days later. He said, load all your rigging tools, your tools, everything, and just save all your receipts. And so I did. And you started to kind of work your way up, and as people learned your skills. Why do you think your skills were... I mean, the circus really set you up to do this well. Not yes. only to do it creatively, but to do it safely and really with excellence. Why Why was the circus such good training? I guess because for me, what seemed to be very easy seemed to be hard to find people locally that could do that. And so that's, that's what I had to set out to do was find people. Well, I ended up bringing people here from the circus that knew how to rig. And that is what helped me a lot. Um, I got a lot of support from people that knew uh, enough that I could be feel comfortable with doing serious rigging stuff. Yeah. And so then a few years later, 
in that same decade, you went to work on a film called Shag. Hail to thee, our alma mater. Hail, Spartan birth. They were the last days of innocence. She all think Carson Holly had premarital sex. <gasps> Melina, gross! For a country. Elvis is over, man. I mean, I mean, look at the guy's face. <laughs> He's desperate. For a generation. For four best friends who wanted it to last. <laughs> Forever. I love y'all so much. Y'all are going off to college. And you're going to forget me. <laughs> She's wrecked her face. <laughs> because for one weekend in the summer of 63, you could still trust your heart. And that was part of the trailer from the film Shag, 1989 film starring Bridget Fonda, Annabeth Gish, uh, Paige Hanna, mm -hmm. and Phoebe Cates. So these women are celebrating their last weekend together before college. For some of them, perhaps weddings for another one, but perhaps not. Why, first of all, did you choose this film for the North Carolina Filmmaker Series? Um, one of the reasons I, I liked it was because I, I could take my whole crew from Wilmington to there because there was no local crew in Myrtle, Myrtle Beach, Beach, South Carolina. That's yeah, right. that's where it was shot. That's right. And so it always made me happy to be able to go to a location and be able to take my whole crew, which I did. And uh, Scott Davis and Gene Poole and Rufus, Logan Berkshire. Um, it, you know, I had a great crew. And so that was part of it, plus the fact that Peter McDonald was a cinematographer gentlemen, wonderful to work with, um, and I had a great, great time on that show. It just, there was a lot of, you don't really realize how much rigging happens because it's just, you just don't see it. There's right. nothing. Uh, but my favorite thing on those period cars, 1963 and So older. it's shot in 1980-something. Right. Came out in 89. But this was actually set in 1963. 63. So all those beautiful old cars, I love rigging cameras on those kind of cars. They're solid. You're not worried about, you know, you, of course you're not going to scratch them or dent them. But they're solid. You have things to tie off to. Like newer cars are difficult, and you have to use certain different you know ways to rig. But those cars were so much fun to rig. And as you see the movie, you realize that there's a lot of cameras work on the cars, and I love that's one of my favorite things to do. There are scenes when the the girls in the car are driving down the main drag at night, and there's another car of of guys, yeah. boys, I guess, that, uh -huh. that comes up. And so that's what you're talking about when they had these dialogues that's right. in, the, in yeah. the cars. Again, we had the, the insert car. Uh, so that was a, a handy tool, and we did a lot of work off of that. But we did a lot of mounts. And Peter McDonald was such a gentleman about he would just – you'd take a measurement of where he had the lens in his hand, and he would go off and do something else, and you would rig the camera. And uh, it was great. Now, Peter McDonald, the director of photography, he was also English. 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> and didn't – so what did that mean? I <laughs> Well, the first thing he said was, I can't call home and tell my family that I'm working on a movie called Shag. <laughs> I know it's a dance here, but it's not a dance in England. <laughs> well, it's a certain kind of dance. Um, well, yeah. You know. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, It's uh, a different kind of dance. I have another English friend who said the same thing. She's disturbed every time she sees a sign in Wrightsville Beach about shag lessons for kids. Oh, yeah. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> so so y- there were a lot of jokes then yes. about the name oh, yeah. of the film. Yeah. For him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for Peter, he, it was funny, quite funny. And a lot of your experience, Bobby Huber, you try to find these fun and memorable moments. You worked on Back to the Future 3, mm-hmm. and you did French Hours, and you said that was one of your favorite experiences of all time. W- what are French Hours? French Hours are uh, eight hours. Uh, they feed you the whole time. They keep food available, so you never break for lunch. You just have food available. And it's a straight eight hours. The uh, reason we did that was because of the color of the sun in the morning and in the evening in Northern California. Because the summer is long days and the sun is orange. The, everything is orange in the morning and in the evening. So you've got to bookend your filming into that eight hours. So you can't start filming until after 9, 9.30. Uh, then you have to be done before the eight hours, and that's it. And so these were shorter days for you. Yeah. What did that mean? What did you do? Well, we were two miles from a lake, so three people, uh, including the director of photography for that unit, uh, brought their ski boats up there from L.A., and this is in Sonora, California, and they brought their ski boats, and so every day when we wrapped at the end of the day, I went straight to the lake, and I got a pontoon boat. I rented it, and I put a cooler and guitars and music and whatever food, and I would anchor out in the middle of the lake, and the ski boats would come out there and tie off, and whoever wanted to go skiing just would go skiing. for you know We had three or four hours of daylight left every day. So it became... One of my most fun memories. <laughs> your your film crew and and cast do those do those two groups often get together or do they stay pretty separate on films? Well, it depends because when we went to Monument Valley, uh, that was, I mean, we had one of the one of the things we're not allowed to really have Michael J. Fox uh, doing stunts for us. We had a couple of shots that we really needed him in the DeLorean in front of the train, and we had an insert car, the pro, the camera car I talk about. Right. We had railroad wheels to go on that and to go on the DeLorean. So there were times that we were going 25 miles an hour on the track with all three of those things, uh, the camera car in front, the DeLorean with the car the train behind it, and then it was dangerous. You know, anything could happen. Train can't stop fast, so anything could happen. So one day Michael came to us and said, you know, I know I want to do this shot where I hang out of the car and, like, I'm grabbing a hoverboard kind of a thing. And Max Clevens uh, was the director, and he said, I don't know, you know, uh, 
Bob Zemeckis was the director on the main unit, and he said, I don't know, you know, Bob's going to get mad if I let you do this. And he said, but I want to do it. So we let him do it, and we did get in trouble. <laughs> because the next day when we saw what we call dailies, is what we shot the day before, we saw that. And when it came to that shot, Robert Zemeckis stood up and said, hey, wait a minute, that was Michael. And we said, well, yeah, he... Uh, you know, and he said, "That's no, not again. He's not doing that." So Michael said, "Look, it was my fault. He, had, you know, owned up to it." And uh, but we didn't get him again for stunts. Oof! But you got away with that one. We got away with that one. And that is this edition of Coastline, Bobby Huber. What a pleasure it's been having you with it's us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. To be here. Thank you. Thanks also to the North Carolina Filmmaker Series. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Jonathan Furnell engineered this episode. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find the episode at whqr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. <laughs>